0: Is there any gain in our toil? Is there meaning to life? The preacher's meditations in Ecclesiastes call us to consider life under the sun, existence without a loving, benevolent God over it all. Along the way, this wisdom book calls the weary and the skeptical to deal with the inevitability of death, and in so doing, discover how is there any gain in You're listening to a podcast of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. We exist to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people whole in Him. We are going to read the introduction to the Christmas story, the message uh, from Gabriel to Mary, and then Mary's response of worship. So we will read Luke 1, 26 through uh, through 55, Uh, and then with the Lord's strength, I'll read this, and we'll pray, uh, and then I'll preach. So Luke 1, 26 through 55, this is the Word of God. as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Let's pray together. Our Father, would you speak to us today from your holy word? I ask that there would not be distractions that would keep us from hearing the glory of Jesus Christ. Would I not be the distraction? Would other things around us not distract us, but rather would you grab our hearts, Lord, and would you draw us to yourself, you who are gentle and lowly, and who love your people. Lord, you will receive great glory through the foolishness of preaching. God, we thank you that you came to show us the Father in humility and grace in Jesus Christ as a baby in the manger. But Lord, you did not stay there, and we know that. And so we worship you, Father, not only a newborn king, but the one who reigns and sits at the right hand of the Father now. I pray for your help now as we open your word and we respond would you make us people of joy and obedient hearts that fear the Lord? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, I am an unashamed fan of Christmas. Uh, I enjoy this time of year greatly. I know there are a few Grinches out there, and that's totally fine. It's okay. Um, I'm, I'm not stopping you. Uh, but me, I mean, I, I like the green and the red decorations all around. I like the lights, and I like some of the, uh, the Christmas classic movies, not all of them. And even as we talked this morning, I too love snow. Um, I I think I saw a few hands going up, but I can remember one particular season uh, on the day of Christmas. I think it snowed five inches in Pennsylvania where I grew up, and it truly was beautiful. I'm like, I'm definitely a sucker for a white Christmas. You know, you've got uh, the beauty of something that's new Something that's beautiful and almost as though it's transformed by this thing that God lays across the whole landscape. It's so beautiful, uh, you know. And I, I, I like the, the gathering together of families for uh, different traditions, the giving of presents, and of course the eating of tons of good food. I feel like when I was talking about, I realized the last couple of times I keep talking about food. It's as a regular theme for me. Kotel tells us to enjoy it, so I'm very thankful for these good things. Uh, But what I'm saying that I think is totally fine, and I would even say is a good thing, is for us to enjoy the cultural holidays that our neighbors and families enjoy together. So I would encourage you, go to your Christmas parties, uh, drink eggnog, and and enjoy turkey and all the different things that go along with it. Uh, I'm not saying this from the pulpit, but if you want to watch Hallmark movies, that's good too. You can go for that, the Christmas specials. Uh, Eat turkey and enjoy the season with family and friends. But of course, you didn't come to hear that necessarily. I recognize that this cultural holiday that we've made out of it has a far deeper significance for those of us who know Christ. There's a part of this that we need to talk about that's far more central to who we are, right? Uh, I realize that the Bible doesn't call out a specific celebration for the incarnation. It doesn't tell us on a specific day to do this. But when our culture sets aside a holiday, that generally acknowledges the birth of Jesus. I mean, we shouldn't miss the clue. We shouldn't miss the free advertising, right? I mean, it's a, a, what an important and great opportunity to worship and celebrate the God that so loved the world that he gave his only son. What a message. And what an opportunity us for take a day that gets set aside each year for this very thing that God became human and gave us himself so that we might know the glory of the Father. Uh, most years what I've done is I've, I've broken away from our sermon series and just read uh, some of the things in the, in the Christmas story, made some observations. I'm not going to preach from Ecclesiastes today necessarily, but I do want to do something that's a little bit different. Uh, we read through uh, Luke 1 here a little bit. What I want to do is kind of skip across the top and make some important observations for us. So this will not necessarily be a a normal sermon that you're you're used to, but I do hope and pray that it will give grace to the hearer, conviction and encouragement then to us who will listen to the message. Let's go ahead and take a look at Luke 1 for a moment together. Here we have Mary, uh, here she is in Nazareth, being visited by the angel Gabriel. I mean, honestly, it must have been a startling experience uh, It's not every day that something like this happens. And she responds in some sort of uh, intrepidation and fear. She's just not sure what's going to happen. But he tells her that she is favored, that she's one that the Lord is with. And he tells her that she will conceive and bear a son and call his name Jesus. But in verse 32 and 33, we get some shocking information here. This is no ordinary pregnancy. um, Because this is no ordinary son, no ordinary person. In verse 32, Gabriel says that he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. You see, like the escalation over, over. Oh my goodness. Whoa. I mean, it'd be one thing for the angel to come and visit and talk about a pregnancy, but after hearing the description of this child. We realize that the angel is visiting for a specific reason here. To tell them not just about a pregnancy that's going to happen, but to announce to the world something that's far more significant. This child will be called the son of the most high. And the first thing I just want you to mark out here, the first thing I wanna draw attention to is this next phrase. The Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So the first observation I want to make here, Mary's son will be, or Mary's son was the king. You see here, he's drawing directly back to the ancient line of David here. And not just any king. He was the king over the house of Jacob. He was the king from the lineage of David. We're talking about King David here. And here we are told that his reign will be forever. It's not a small word. Forever of his kingdom there will be no end. What's happening here, this is a prophecy that Mary's son, this this child born to a somewhat obscure young woman, that he would be the king that would fulfill all the promises that we know of in 2 Samuel 7, when God came to him to tell him that he would give him a house and that of his rule there would be no end. The Lord told David back there, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, of course, Solomon was certainly, and other sons, were a fulfillment of this prophecy in part, But, of course, they also didn't go on forever. Here in Luke 1, we have a very important and specific return to this language, that one is coming who will be the king forever and is the one who will be conceived in Mary. That's not the only thing I want to mark out in this passage. Mary is rightly surprised by the news, and she wonders how this could happen if she has not been with a man. To which the angel responds about this truly miraculous birth in verse 35. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now we all recognize the miracle of human life. It's a beautiful and wondrous thing. But here we see something that's even different than that. We're talking about one that is... uh, conceived and brought about by the Holy Spirit's work. This is no ordinary son. This is no ordinary conception. And this is no ordinary king. The second thing I just want to point out here in Luke 1 is the fact that Mary's son is called holy, the son of God. Now, if you read the account just before this, the miracle that's uh, happened in John the Baptist, his conception to the barren woman Elizabeth, You will be amazed how the angel talks about John. If you look back there, you'll see it. He says, he's great before the Lord, filled with the Holy Spirit. But even this description falls well short of what Mary is hearing about her son, Jesus. It's almost as though the first miracle is amazing. And now we, we meet Mary and the angel brings something that's even bigger than the last one. The child will be called Holy, the very Son of God, the Son of the Most High. And there, So we understand that there's a qualitative difference that we just can't ignore here. It's really important, a stepping up. Jesus is called holy, not blameless or righteous. He is called holy. And this king, then, is from the line of David, David able to receive his kingdom of promises, but he's not like David completely. He's different. It seems as though he's set apart. He's, in a sense, a, a different essence as well, although he is yet fully human in every single way. So I want to see that Mary's son, Jesus, is called holy. As we move on, we see Mary accepts this word, the angel departs, and Mary heads out to see Elizabeth. <clears throat> we learn a great deal by way of Elizabeth's humble and exuberant response when she comes to visit her, right? I mean, think about this. Think about what Elizabeth has just experienced. She's an older woman. Barren, probably many difficult years, and God has given her a pregnancy. Her and, 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 and her husband have come together, and there is a son who is in her womb now. Without any guile, though, her response is not one of jealousy or upsetness about what's going on, but rather of great joy to what's going on for Mary. The presence of the Lord was there, and there was nothing but joy that comes out of Elizabeth. Listen to how she talks in verse 43. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Verse 44. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. She's, she's, she's not jealous. She's not catty about it. She's not like, of all persons day, this is my day. Like, think about it. How, how long she's waited. Instead, she explodes with joy because she knows the Messiah is in Mary. The third thing I just want to mark out here then is that Mary's son brought true joy. I know again that babies bring us all kinds of wonderful joy. I'm a father of of children and I understand the great enjoyment Uh, and understanding the miracle that God does to bring about a child. We rejoice together. But Elizabeth is overcome completely by the very presence of this baby in Mary's womb. And she graciously praises God, and she even blesses Mary. But as we see, it's not only Elizabeth who does this, it's also the baby in the womb, John. He leaps for joy in her womb. Not only does Elizabeth and John catch the joy, Listen to how Mary responds in verse 46 and 47. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. As Luke lays this out, it's almost as though he's showing us that wherever this child goes, he brings the true joy of God. Mary's brought true joy by her son. Mary's son then brings true joy. But that's not all. Mary sings this incredible song of praise to God that kind of flows out of her experience of what God has done. The gift of Jesus, the Son of God, the the Messiah, has caused her to respond to God in praise. And in so doing, she explains to us what's going on here. Mary is proclaiming praise to God, but not in some generic way. If you remember, she's not just talking about general what God is doing, but rather in her specific circumstance. Mary is saying that these things now, she's doing this because of the great work that God has done in her to conceive of this great king who will be called holy, who will bring joy. And this little section then is not only a look back at all that God has done in history. It certainly is true. Everything that Mary says can kind of be backed up with what he's already done. But it's also a prophecy looking forward and saying that he will do this through the event that's going on with me right now in the conception of the Messiah here in Mary. It's a type of prophecy, looking forward to the future, that God will do these things through Jesus, the child in her womb. Let me just read these words. and I want us together to rejoice with Mary. Let me just read uh, verse 46 through 55 again. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him for generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. The last thing in this passage, I just want to point out here, is that Mary's son brings true justice and mercy to his people. Mary's son brings true justice and mercy. The statement we find here in these verses are, is amazing. I mean, twice Mark, um, excuse me, Mary talks about mercy. In verse fifty, she says that his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And verse 54, if you look, says that, she, that he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And then listen to the, the reckoning work that God is doing as he put things that are all out of sorts, as he puts them right. In verse 47 he says, My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Verse 51, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. This son will not be like other kings. He will not show partiality or favor to the rich, proud, ones that can somehow bring him something in return for their their worship. No, this king lifts up the lowly. He feeds the hungry. He exalts those who are truly oppressed. In other words, he rights all of the wrongs. Mary's son brings true justice and mercy. So looking at this passage, we learn that Jesus, the son who will be born to Mary, will be of the ancient line of David. He will be the king. He will be called holy, the son of God. He will bring true joy, and He will right all of the wrongs that are done. He will bring true justice and mercy. Now, these are wonderful and glorious truths about our Savior. But if you've been even around Cornerstone for any time or around our preaching, you know that the way I handled this passage was kind of a little different than normal. It wasn't unfaithful, but it was kind of like a little bit more selective. I just pulled a few different things out and skimmed across choosing a few things to talk about. Um, I, I didn't really talk about all the parts. So I think it's fair for you to ask the question, why did you do that? Why just bring out these things? Why not talk about the work of the Holy Spirit? Wow, that would be great. Or, or the angel Gabriel as a messenger, a sent one of God. Or the faith of Mary and Elizabeth. Or how the mighty one has done great things. Well, all these things would be good for us to talk about. But the reason I'm being so selective this morning is because I want to go somewhere with it. I want us to see that Jesus is king, that he's holy, that he brings true joy, and that he rights all of the wrongs, all this for a purpose. I wanted to bring these things out because each one of these things should be meaningful for those of us who have been reading through and studying and thinking about Ecclesiastes. If you've been with us these past few months, we've been working through the book of Ecclesiastes. And the book and its authors are incredibly brutal and honest about real life. It's very helpful for those of us who look around at the stuff that happens to us. Look around at our city. Look around at our own lives and things are tumultuous. And then we look at the promises of God. And we're saying, why aren't these things going together? What in the world are you up to, God. Kohelet kind of talks about that in Ecclesiastes over and over again. I took some time this week and I've kind of been musing on it and thinking and I went through slowly through the parts of Ecclesiastes where we've already been and thought through and collected a list of things that still today, in a sense, and for him, the writer, make us feel a little bit crazy, make us feel like, ah, it doesn't just all come together yet. I have all these unanswered questions where I feel like his response to us is, find joy and to trust God and to fear Him. And yet there are so many loose ends. He tells us, in a sense, all things are hevel. Remember this? He talks about like it's, it's meaningless sometimes. He talks about that or the fact that it's like a vapor, like smoke, like unable to hold on to it. It's fleeting. Throughout the book, especially in chapter 1, he says there's no gain from all our toil under the sun. Later on, he says that increased knowledge and wisdom what does it bring? Sorrow and vexation. That's a problem. He talks about death, this huge problem that comes to all of us. Evil, unrighteousness is even found in the places where there's supposed to be righteousness and justice. Oppression, injustice, these are huge problems. This idea about crookedness abounding. The righteous suffer while the wicked seem to prosper. What's the deal? Wisdom and all the answers to life just can't be found out by men. And Ecclesiastes last week taught us that we live under the kingship of an earthly, wicked, sometimes even foolish ruler. Ecclesiastes leaves us with so many questions about the world that don't seem to have a satisfactory answer to us. With the rest of the time here this morning, I want to show us how the Christmas story The incarnation of the Son of God helps us to answer some of these questions and encourages us to trust Him, just like our Old Testament brothers and sisters did when they read the book of Ecclesiastes. I pulled out four things here from Luke 1. I kind of worked through them. Four things about Jesus that we now need to revisit and talk about. Jesus is King. Jesus is holy. Jesus brings joy. And Jesus brings righteousness and mercy. We start with the one at the end and we'll work backwards here. Almost in every chapter of Ecclesiastes, we're faced with the fact that good things seem to happen to bad people. And it seems as though bad stuff happens to good people in this life. Ecclesiastes 8.14 says, There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. How about oppression or partiality against the vulnerable? If you go back to Ecclesiastes 3:16, he says this moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. So injustice unrighteousness, oppression. How do we deal with these things in our world? What's the answer? Well, Mary has something to say about her son, Jesus. She said this in his coming, that God was blessing his people. Verse 48, she said, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant." He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. I love this last one. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. In other words, Jesus has brought true justice and mercy, righting wrongs, showing mercy to the weak and to the vulnerable. It will not be forever that the wicked prosper and the righteous ones suffer. What about sorrow and vexation? Over and over again, Ecclesiastes tells us that pursuing the answers or wisdom or justice is like chasing after the wind. Simply will end in much disappointment. Listen to Ecclesiastes 1, 17 and 18. And I applied my heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. What are we to do with this problem? continues. Well, Luke gives us good news. He says that Elizabeth, John, the unborn baby... Uh, and Mary all have something to say. They are overjoyed in the presence of the Messiah. Elizabeth says, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. In other words, Jesus, our Messiah, brings true joy, banishing sorrow and vexation. What about the problem of evil and unrighteousness that seems to abound in the book of Ecclesiastes? Well, do we need to like change everything and like get everyone on the, you know, reforming their behavior? And we need to start doing right? Is is that the way to to get everyone stop sinning? Well, the angel Gabriel tells Mary, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. We, We know this. We don't need behavioral reform. We need the one who could be, completely fulfilling all righteousness. And Jesus did exactly that. Jesus was holy, the Son of God, and through him alone can we also experience and live holy lives before the Father. So what about, the, what about that last thing, the thing we saw last week? The problem of us having to bow our to earthly kings, ones that are often wicked and foolish and always short-lived. Listen again to the words of Gabriel as he describes Jesus, Luke 1, 32 and 33. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus is the King. We talked about this last time. We've got to make sure we get this. Jesus is the real, eternal king the son of david he's the ultimate one he is of the he has the ultimate kingdom that will that he set in motion that will last for eternity and that will one day show itself to be the only place a person can live in joy and prosperity forever with god the christmas story shows us that at the coming of Christ, God set in motion all that will eventually answer every unanswered question that we have from Ecclesiastes. I've kind of been musing on this all week and kind of working it through and having different conversations, but what I'm trying to say is that the problems that we walk away from Ecclesiastes with, the things that are unanswered for us, all of them find their ultimate goal and fulfillment in a person. In Jesus Christ, our King. At the beginning of the month, uh, Jordan, if you remember this, preached a message explaining and rejoicing in that phrase, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. That's what we're saying again here. And I've only touched on a few things that we find in the Christmas story. What about all the other things that Christ fulfills as all these other problems? What about the problem of gain, right? What does Paul say? Paul tells us, because Ecclesiastes says we can't gain anything here, right? What does Paul tell us in Philippians 1.21? He tells us for a Christian to live is Christ and to die is gain. In chapter 3 he goes on, he talks about everything that he's done, all of his good works, and he calls them rubbish for the sake of gaining Christ. How about ignorance or the failure of wisdom in the book of Ecclesiastes? We, We saw that over and over again. What happens when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, though, that Christ crucified is our wisdom. It's a very unique phrase. Not only is he our power, not only is he our salvation, he is our wisdom. In him, we find the right answer to all of our struggles and problems. Can we know and understand all things? Well, kind of, but it seems like what the New Testament does is directs us to the person of Jesus, our ultimate wisdom. We may not understand all the different pieces, but we know the place to go. How about death? I mean, can't get rid of that, can we? Well, again, Paul, apparently authority on Jesus Christ, tells us that Jesus beat death. That he will beat it forever as the last enemy. We see this and in Romans 6, he tells us that we have been united to him in his death. And if that's true, then we will also be united to him in his resurrection. It's amazing. Death? A problem? Well, it's still real, but we know that the one has come who has overcome death and will do so for us too. Lastly, what about the idea that we talk about crookedness, adversity, struggle, things that we just cannot see and we, we struggle because life is difficult. It brings us things that don't seem to add up for us. Adversity is normal and a, a difficult part of our lives is suffering. Will it always be so? Let me read from Revelation 21, 4 through 5. He says this, talking about Jesus. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away and he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. This is our hope. The hope of our Savior King who has come. This is why we say Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. We've probably heard this phrase, we are living between advents of his first coming, and we know that he will come again. So there's no question, we're in a different place than the writer and the original readers of Ecclesiastes, and yet, do you get this? We're called to the same thing, to trust God, to fear him and to walk forward. And although we have so many answers, it seems, we're still called to the same actions. We are still in one long, glorious line of the sons of Abraham, loving and fearing and trusting God to do as he promises that he will do. But we stand here seeing, having seen the son, the one who has come as a baby in the manger, The one who was the only son, as he says in John, the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Christ is the answer to so many of our questions from Ecclesiastes. Perhaps we didn't think about it that way, though. Perhaps it's a different type of kingdom that we may not have the same ability to see with our physical eyes. And so we're distracted. We don't recognize it so easily. And thus we're called to the same things, to fear God and to trust him even when the, the way does look crooked and we can't see it from our perspective and he alone is true wisdom. So this morning, and as you go on this week, I want to wish you a very Merry Christmas and I pray that your families will take the truths as we look to Jesus Christ who was born in actuality, in real history, the one who has broken through so that we might have salvation. He is the king. We can trust him and him alone. The one who brings righteousness and mercy, the one who brings true joy, the one who is holy, and the one who is our King forever. Let's pray together. Well, Lord God, would you receive glory and honor through the preaching of your Word and through our hearts responding both in joy and love and obedience. Would you convict us, God, Would you encourage us? Would you strengthen us and give us grace as we pursue these things? Help us, Lord, not to live as though Jesus didn't come. Help us not to live as though we don't have answers. Lord, we do. We know now looking to Christ that we can trust you. Not only have you answered, but Lord, you will answer. We trust that you will complete the work that you've begun. And we know that you will one day make all things new. May you be praised. in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're not a part of a gospel-centered church in your city, we encourage you to find and belong to one. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit CBC Virginia.